0: Welcome to Fast Talk, the Vela News podcast and everything you need to know to ride like a pro. Awesome. We're sitting here on Trevor's almost porch on a beautiful day in Colorado. I was going to include
1: anybody that.
0: Hello and welcome to Fast Talk. I'm your host, Chris Case, managing editor of Velo News, joined by coach Trevor Connor, a man who is, quite frankly, perfect. We all may. <laughs> <clears throat> Maybe not. Okay. Today's episode is all about mistakes. No one trains perfectly, no one races perfectly, which can be frustrating when so often those mistakes are made out of honest effort and a desire to perform at our best. But we have a choice in how we treat our mistakes. One way is to get frustrated and beat up on ourselves. The other is to realize that admitting when we make a mistake is an opportunity to improve and become a better athlete. With that second perspective in mind, today we're going to talk about some of the most common mistakes that we see in athletes, even pros. And we're going to hear from a variety of athletes, coaches, and experts who've been around the block a few times. They know all the mistakes, but more importantly, they know what to do about them. We'd like to say that there's a clear structure and outline to this one, but the truth is we started talking about the mistakes with our guests, and we ended up going all over the map, from warm-ups to bike fitting to why Max Testa is a fun guy to work with. It was a fun conversation. There are a lot of good stories, and hopefully in here you'll find a few aha moments about what you can do to be a better cyclist. A few of the things we talk about. First, the one thing that almost all of our guests said was the biggest mistake. Hint. Don't try too hard to figure it out. Number two, being coachable, or more generally, being willing to listen, know yourself, and identify your mistakes. Number three, warm ups and cool downs. They can have a big impact if done right and also if done wrong. Number four, nutrition, though you may be surprised by what our guests say is the biggest mistake. Number five, too much intensity. Do you really think Coach Connor and I were going to have an episode about mistakes and not bring that one up? Number six, bike fit and biomechanical mistakes. One of our guests today is Dr. Andy Pruitt, who has made a very successful career of helping athletes find success by fixing these often overlooked mistakes. Number seven, racing mistakes and why one of the biggest mistakes you can make is to never risk making mistakes. And finally, we'll talk about a more philosophical mistake, not knowing when to move on. Our primary guests today are Dr. Andy Pruitt and Frankie Andreu. By now, you should know very well who Dr. Pruitt is, one of the foremost experts on cycling ergonomics and medical issues in athletes. Frankie Andreu, of course, was a longtime professional rider, a mentor to many, a team manager, a race commentator, and honestly, somewhat of a legend in the sport. Along with our two primary guests, we checked in with several other respected experts, including Joe Friel, author of This Cyclist Training Bible, which was recently updated, Joe has coached over a 1,000 athletes in his career and has seen it all, so we had to ask him what he thinks are the biggest mistakes athletes make. We also speak with Jared Berg, the head physiologist at the University of Colorado Sports Medicine and Performance Center right here in Boulder. One of the issues with making mistakes is we often convince ourselves that it doesn't actually affect us. But you can't fool the physiology, and Jared sees the inescapable truth of that every day. Next, we pulled in an old interview with Grant Holicky, formerly of Apex Coaching with Neil Henderson, and now with Forever Endurance, who talks about a mistake that we love to harp on, training in moderato. Finally, Trevor touches base with Husheng Amiri, former Canadian national and Olympic team coach who's worked with many of the best cyclists in Canada. Like Joe Friel, he's seen it all and had some interesting insights on the importance of being prepared. Now, remember that practice makes perfect I swear, we never mess up in this entire episode. So, let's make you fast. Today's episode is brought to you by Whoop. Well, you all know out there that Trevor is the real nerd on this show. He looks at the numbers. I'm not so much a numbers guy, but I do like Insight's that's kind of the cool thing about whoop for me is that it takes all of these numbers and if you're l- really interested in the raw data you can see that but if you really want just the insights just the take-home message if you will it gives you that too
1: yeah that's what's really nice Yeah, i can look at my athlete's whoop score or data and really dig in to see what's going on with them but for the athlete who doesn't want all that data like chris You can just look at what it's recommending. You can look at your recovery score in the morning and say, it's time to go hard or it's time to to take a rest. And you don't have to do that deep analysis.
0: Whoop is the performance tool that is changing the way people optimize their training and recovery. Whoop provides a wrist-worn heart rate monitor that features detailed app-based analytics and insights on recovery, strain, and sleep. Whoop tracks sleep quality and heart rate variability 100 times per second, 24 hours per day, to help you know when your body is recovered or when it needs rest. You can also use the strap to track workouts and get strain scores that let you know how strenuous the training was on your body. Whoop helps you optimize your sleep based on how fatiguing your day was and tracks sleep performance with insight into your sleep quality, stages of sleep, and consistency. To make things better, Whoop just released the new Whoop Strap 3.0, which includes a suite of new hardware and app features. The Whoop Strap 3.0 now has five-day battery life and improved strap and live heart rate monitoring. A handful of new in-app features, including the new Strain Coach, improve the way you track and plan your training and recovery. Whoop has provided an offer for Fast Talk listeners to get 15% off their purchase with the code FASTALK. That's F-A-S-T-T-A-L-K. Just go to whoop.com, that's W H O O P.com, and use the code FASTTALK at checkout to save 15% off and optimize the way you train. All right, well, today's episode I'm really excited about. We've got two legends, two gurus of the sport of cycling, um, two good storytellers. Dr. Andy Pruitt and Frankie Andreo, both so experienced in the sport. Thank you guys for, for joining us today. You bet.
2: Yeah, my pleasure. Glad to be here.
0: Great to have you on the show. So today's episode, of course, is the top mistakes that even pros make. And I know you guys have seen it from various perspectives as riders, as managers, as consultants as, from, a, from a fit perspective, from an athlete perspective, from all angles. So that's what our conversation we'd like it to be about today so that everybody out there can learn from these mistakes that even pros make. So why don't we start off with
1: the, the big category? We've kind of broken this down into training, equipment, racing, but I think training is the one that we, we often hear from listeners, hear from people as coaches, see things that we say let's let's talk about this let's let's try to fix this so dr pruitt you had a few things that as soon as we asked you if you could be on the show you sent us a good list of things <laughs> you would love to see uh, people adjust so why don't you start us off what's what's your biggest training mistake and i'd love frankie's comment
3: on this but i i see it all the time and at almost every level and that is that success breeds overtraining you win a race you suddenly think you got to keep that level forever through the whole season and overtraining sets in disease sets in and and it's usually based on some big success that drives you to 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 overtrain and i I, i've seen it at every level i've seen favorite guy lance do it i've seen Allison tetrick the current queen of gravel do it i've seen my own son scott do it i've done it right i mean it, it the last question on this list is you know what's 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 the one mistake i'd like to go back and fix and I was so overtrained for the, my Paralympic appearance in 1988. I, I was so overcooked, I, I couldn't get out of my own way. A month before that, however, I, I could do anything I wanted to do. And it's that recognizing that moment when you've got the cat by the tail and being able to back off and maintain it, right? So it's a totally training error, but it's also hugely psychological, right? Success breeds overtraining. Frankie, what do you think?
2: No, I agree. You know, when you, when you brought this subject forward, the first thing came into my mind, the biggest mistake is overtraining. Rest is the most important part of any training plan. And it's very hard to get any cyclist or any professional to kind of ingest, to, to believe. And so when you're doing so many races, if you're doing a long stage race like the tour, you tend to get into a state of overtraining. But just when you're out training, getting ready for events, you're always thinking about what the other guy is doing. You're always thinking about trying to do more and it catches up with you and you end up digging yourself into a hole. And instead of building, you're tearing yourself down. And I've seen it happen many times when I was a director with uh, the riders that they, they get caught up into the training. And as you had mentioned, Dr. Pruitt, you know, that success, they just want to, you know, things are going great. So if I do more, it's going to go even better. And then it ends up backfiring
3: on everybody. But you know, at the tour, everybody's in the same state of overtraining. So there's a fairly level playing field after the first week. Is that not right?
2: No, it is right. And, and, you know, one of the key things with leading into a big, long race is like making sure you're extremely rested going into that event. And so I would definitely take, you know, a week of rest leading in, even to the fact of maybe losing some fitness to make sure that I'm as rested as possible so that when I start, uh, I can, you know, perform well. And, you know, in my own experience, I found like a a sign for me when I was overtrained is that I couldn't dig deep. I couldn't suffer. I couldn't like hold that threshold of just like, you know, hanging on, hanging on, hanging on. I could suffer for a little bit and then my legs would completely blow up and it would happen you know relatively quickly. And so it took me years to be able to figure it out. And that's that's another thing is just, you know, about learning your body, looking for those signs that are indications like, hey, something's not right here. And when I couldn't like dig in and really suffer, uh, even from a criterium to a road race to on a mountain, I knew I knew things were in trouble and I needed to rest. And, th- and again, you know, to tell someone to say, hey, you need to take a week off, you need to take a week and a half off and rest, it just, they don't listen. They, it doesn't make sense. They just, they want to play a, a game of catch up. And so it becomes very difficult. And I see that a lot of times also with my riders when they crash and they get injured and they're, so they're, you know, they're off their bike for a week or whatever, trying to recover. And then all of a sudden they're like, all right, I'm feeling good again. And then they just jump in and they go full bore and they just dig themselves into a hole instead of gradually kind of building up that training
3: so frank and most of the r- listeners of this are are not cat ones or pros or, or tour riders and right now the, the new Grand fondo thing the gravel thing even uh
4: this
3: which is more of a stage race platform right for the for the amateur how 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 do you suggest that they peak for a one-day race like Nationals or a one day big Grand Fondo in your neighborhood versus signing up for a multi day uh, Suffer Fest. I mean, so the, the way the, the amateur needs to peak a rest for those is different. What do you suggest?
2: Well, I, I mean, I don't see much difference in getting ready for a one day or getting ready for a three day. I mean, a three day, it, it's a little bit more. So, I mean, you know, you might need a couple more days of rest leading into uh, a three day event. Another common mistake—I mean, not changing subjects, but on the same note—is something that it took me a while to realize. Is that a big mistake? I find for a lot of riders is taking a complete rest day the day before the event. They think they're going to come into the event then and feeling a lot better. And what I, what I found in, with my riders is that you end up not feeling good. It's like your body forgot, like your body goes into shutdown mode. It goes into rest mode, and so the next day on your race day or your event day, you don't feel that good. And I find, you know, it's better to take you know three days of rest. Let's just say it was a Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday, Friday, do a couple hours. And if you're racing on Sunday, Saturday, do a couple intervals, something short to kind of get your body like to open itself up to kind of reawake like, hey, we're still going so that when you get to event day, you actually still feel good. And I see this applies. I think like you mentioned, it doesn't matter if you're a pro, a cat one, a cat three, or just beginning. All of this applies to everybody. And I think if you're leading into an event or something, don't take a complete day off the day before an event. That would be one advice that I would have for anyone.
1: I actually saw a great study on this where they, they looked at um, Olympic medalists in multiple endurance sports, um, how they prepped for their, their big event. And what they found was a week before, so starting about 14 days out from the event, that week you would see most of these athletes take a, a rest day, often multiple rest days. But that five, six, seven days before their actual event, they would not take a single day off. Some of those days would be very easy, but they would never just take a full day off.
3: It's not just cardiovascular either. Uh, the the musculoskeletal system uh, doesn't necessarily like that complete time off. Uh, right. The muscle tendinous units and all those things they they become accustomed and they become flexible. They become accustomed to taking nutrients in and, and then let titrating them out. So it's not just cardiovascular. It's also musculoskeletal that that need for keeping the motor open.
2: I was going to say I didn't I didn't know the reason why. I just know that if I took the day off before, I was horrible the next day, and so. <laughs> you make that mistake once, you make that mistake twice, and it's like, all right, I figured it out. I'm listening to my body. It's like, look, I need to ride leading up to the event. Not, it doesn't have to be super long. It doesn't have to be super intense, but I need to keep moving.
1: Joe Friel, author of The Cyclist Training Bible, has probably worked with over 1,000 athletes in his career. So we thought he'd have a great insight into mistakes riders make. We couldn't help notice that his number one mistake seems an awful lot like Dr. Pruitt's and Frankie Andreo's. What are some of the big training mistakes that you see athletes make that even the pros make?
4: Yeah, I've I've seen this happen with with pros. The most most common mistake I see is the athlete coming concerned that they've got to make a lot of gains in a short period of time fitness-wise for a race for an upcoming race. And so they decide the best way to do that is to cut out recovery days and recovery weeks or breaks from training. And uh, so they start turning with very, very high intensity, very long duration workouts, whatever the race calls for, without giving themselves a, a break frequently enough. And they wind up overtrained. I I know of one pro triathlete, for example, who had that happen to him back in the late 90s. He's one of the best pro triathletes in, in the U.S. And um, he basically decided to do that. And by the end of, oh, something like about... Ten weeks or so, eight to ten weeks, he was completely overtrained, and it really was the end of his career. That, that kind of finished him off. It was, and I, I see it done by people at all levels. They they think somehow they're unique and they can get by without rest periods, and so they just keep pushing the envelope, and eventually the body falls apart.
1: Good answer. Great. Let's get back to the show and talk about another area of common mistakes: the warm up and cool down.
4: Well, if you're getting ready for
2: a time trial, that's a common mistake: is doing too much. Um, warming up too much. You know, especially if it's hot out, ride down a turbo trainer for 45 minutes. You're just overcooking your system and then you get out into the the time trial in the heat of the day and you don't perform very well because, you know, it's just, you did too much. The core temperature just went up too much and you weren't able to. All too much intervals. uh, Mainly I see, at least on the professional side, it's the time trials where the the warm up really becomes a factor. Too much intensity or trying to do uh, when it's hot out of just too much time on the turbo trainer and me for myself. I was always a big fan of actually going out on the road when I could, I'd, I always preferred warming up on the road, going out, riding, turning the legs, being able to adjust to do, you know, some sprints or some intervals and then coming back with enough time to be able to kind of relax and cool down, cool down the body a little bit before I went out on a time trial. Cause in the road races, right. We never warmed up. We never had to deal with that. Um, that really wasn't a factor.
1: Of all the articles I've ever written, I wrote a piece on warm ups. That was the one where I read the research and said, wow, that is just completely against what, what I thought. I was one of those people who made the mistake of doing the hour and a half warm up for a time trial where I basically did a time trial. And pretty pretty universal. This is pretty universal. The research said, you know, 15, 20 minutes at the most,
0: couple sprints. That's it. Yeah. That's very, all you need. Very counter to what a lot of people do. Yep. I'd say the majority of people do. So, yeah, that was eye-opening.
3: What about cool-down, Frankie? You know, on TV, you see the, the reporter trying to interview the stage winner, and he's on his trainer, still panting away. I, I, I think a bit of this is is, is fad right now, these long trainer cool-downs after a six-hour road race. I, I'm not sure uh, the physiology.
2: Yeah, yeah, it's a little bit different. Well, going back real quick to warm-up, I want to add, also personally, and and when I was a manager, I'd make my riders do this. It's normally, you know, time trials sometimes are in the afternoon. I mean, if it's at 8 a.m., no. For me, the best warm-up though is I would go out and ride in the morning for an hour and a half, then come back, get something to eat, and then like then come back for the time trial, do like 20 minutes on the trainer, and then and then go. And whenever I rode in the morning, whenever I'd have my guys, they would ride in the morning, and then they would always perform perform better in that time trial compared to when they didn't ride, did not ride in the morning, they decided to take the whole morning off sitting around watching TV and then just do the time trial. And so that's something else for um, uh, anybody, you know, competing in a time trial to, to consider the cool down thing drove me nuts. Cause as a reporter, when I was working for the TV thing, you got to go up to talk to somebody. You just got done riding for six hours. It's like, Oh wait, I got to get on the train. I'm like, my God, you just rode for six hours. I can see the idea flushing the legs and kind of, you know, getting some of that lactic acid out and kind of uh, being able to, to relax a little bit on the trainer. But That was the whole idea of getting a massage, you know, at the end of the night, which, which helped accomplish a lot of that. And they still do get massages at the end of the night. So, yeah, I think it's just, it's, it's just one more step for a lot of the riders to take away any doubt, maybe just to kind of, just kind of, I have no doubt it would make the legs feel, you know, better during the hour transfer after, after an event. How much it makes a difference from day by day, you know, I'm not really sure, but it drove when I was media trying to interview these guys. And having to set up the turbo trainer. I mean, I can remember Talansky finishing some, some uh, did he finish a time trial? A time trial or something like that. And when he got done, he was immediately, I don't know why, it was a point-to-point. And the soigneur was there. The soigneur had a trainer, but there was no one there to set up the trainer for him. And all he was possessed, all he was thought, thinking about was like, I got to get on the trainer. I got to get on the trainer. So I opened up the trainer. I took his bike. I put it on the trainer for him. I let him get on there. And then I could interview <laughs>
1: him. <laughs> So I I am not convinced by this. And I read multiple studies that compared having people do a race, immediately get off the bike versus do a race and then get a 15, 30 minute, you know, just easy cool down. And in every study, the people who just immediately got off the bike, the markers of recovery were better the next day, Hmm. which I'm still trying to wrap my head around. But basically, these studies said cool down actually hurts you. It doesn't help you. Interesting.
2: Yeah, it's not, that sounds almost counterintuitive because I would think if you're not a pro, if you're not a pro and you're not getting a massage, because I think the massage makes a big, big difference. I would think if you get done with a hard, hard crit and you have multiple day criteriums or multiple day road races, I think, you know, spinning around for five or 10 minutes to kind of help flush the legs because you're not going to get a massage later on. I would think that that, that would help. And so, uh, yeah, very surprised to hear that.
1: Look, I, I read the research. So that's what the research says. I still tell my athletes to do a cool. down. I just can't wrap my head around it.
3: <laughs> well what about compression, right? Uh, so there is yep. no evidence that compression hose, compression boots, there's no scientific
1: evidence that supports its use. However, that's not true. Okay, oh, then you then I need to see it. Yeah, I will send it. So I two pieces on recovery, and I, I hated these pieces because everything I said to do for recovery, the evidence wasn't hmm. there. The only thing that consistently came up, and this is very recent research, okay, as, as having recovery benefits was compression.
0: Well, I'm glad to hear it because in medicine... It has to be tight. It can't just be the, like, right. S- right. socks, you know?
3: In medicine, we've been using compression boots post-surgery right. for a long time. Yes. And there was no science to support it, but, but in, we knew the chance of DVT was significantly reduced with these boots. So... I've always supported even the, the hose, the tights, and now the recovery boots, I think, are crucial. Like like uh, Frankie says, the, the, the amateur is not going to go get a massage, but, right. you know, you pay a 1000 bucks for a pair of these boots, and that's 10 massages, and you're broken even,
0: mm-hmm.
1: right? Yep. Yeah. So I love this because that was the conclusion of the article I literally just sent to, yeah. to Chris. Okay. We were talking about the immune system. So a lot of these recovery techniques, the issues with them are— mm that they try to reduce inflammation, but we need inflammation to do the muscle repair. So you don't want to block inflammation. That's why you shouldn't be taking painkillers after a hard ride. But there is evidence that compression. So when I'm talking about compression, that also includes massage. Compression actually aids the immune system. Strangely, and I still haven't seen any explanation of this, but without the compression, you see a greater rise in things like IL-6 and I'm not going to. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, no, I nerd use the bomb. nerd, bombs, no nerd bombs. But today, Trevor. you you see much more damaging, highly inflammatory cytokines um, without the compression. When you have the compression and the massage, you see more of the 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 sort of cytokines that are going to promote the repair process. Great. Awesome! I, I love it. There you go. There you go. Science ultimately wins out. Okay, <laughs> I got my nerd bomb. Okay,
5: let's move on. <laughs>
0: A lot of these points that you're making might go towards your second mistake on the list, which is someone that maybe doesn't listen to a coach or <laughs> someone who is a little stubborn about some of the things that a wise person like yourself might tell them. And and they're a little bit on, on the uncoachable side. Well, the,
3: the the story that... So the, the uncoachable young star or master's athlete, the, the story I had in mind was... Uh, 1989, uh, Connie Carpenter, myself, and Mike Frazee took a group of juniors to Moscow. Frankie, were you on that trip? No. Anyway, it was Lance and George and th- that whole crew. Didi Demet won the Worlds that year at, in Moscow. But I remember the day of the, the men's road race. We'd all been out on the course. We'd all been riding with the other countries. And I told, our, I told Lance, I said, Lance, you can win this race. You just need to be very, very patient don't do anything before two laps to go and he's yeah yeah doc yeah yeah doc okay 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 of course with two laps into the race he takes off rides solo off the front for the entire race they're just he, he thinks he's going to win he's dangling out there and of course with a lap to go they gobble him up spit him out and he went out the back so that all the talent in the world can't save you from yourself sometimes yeah. when you're uncoachable but we've all, i mean he's 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 my funny one uh he could have been junior world champion at that moment but he wouldn't listen, but we've all seen it in every
1: other and every other category as well. So I just did an interview with Brent Bookwalter, yep. and it, it was quite amazing because he literally talked about this. We were actually talking about the, the, uh, the immune system in training, but he said athletes, you know, especially very successful athletes, they fear taking a day off training more than they fear feeling sick or feeling burnt out. And his suggestion, which goes right, and so that, you know, there's him addressing your, your first mistake. But his suggestion, which goes right to your second mistake, is he said, you need an advisor who can tell you to stop being an idiot and take a rest day or two. And, and you need to be able to listen to that advisor because it's our nature as cyclists to say, hey, I woke up this morning, my legs are hurting, I'm feeling a little sick, let's go out and do intervals. <laughs> and you need that person, you need to be coachable, you need that person who can say, don't do that. Please don't. Which actually brings us to: Do I need a coach? And they, we did a
0: whole episode on this. It, actually, it,
3: it, the greatest thing about a coach is it gives the athlete a reason to take a day off. They, they, I, I can't ride today. My coach told me not to, or I told, I was told <laughs> to go easy today. So you know, it give, it gives you a, a purpose. It gives you a, an excuse, if you will, to do what you may not necessarily do, but you're doing it because you're paid. This coach this, and so I think having a coach is crucial. Frankie, did you have
0: a coach throughout your career, or were you self-coached, or was it
3: a mix? No,
2: kind of a mix, but mostly self-coached. But I think having a coach, is, it's really good because you can bounce ideas off of the coach, and you get a second opinion. And as, you know, like Brent Bookwalter was saying, you know, when you're an elite athlete, it's just go, go, go. And you're afraid, and very much, I can remember as a racer, taking a day off was extremely hard to do. You felt guilty. You felt like you were falling behind, you you know, and, and you just didn't want to get into that situation, And sometimes it proved detrimental because when you went out and rode, it got worse. And so, you know, and I can remember as a director talking to my rider sometimes, you know, like if you don't if you feel feel really bad when you go out on a bike ride, sometimes it's better just to just go home and and just stop. Because the physical stress you put on your body for having to stay out there when you're not feeling good is as important as that mental part of having to like push through whatever it might be. And then the next day, you're still not feeling good. And the next day, you're still not feeling good because mentally, you're tired. Physically, you're tired. Whereas if you just take one day off, you recover so much mentally and physically that you're good to go for the whole rest of the week. And so sometimes it's just, it's about having that, I guess, that longer term vision of just taking that time off when it's needed.
3: It can go the other way too. You worked with, you know, Max Testa, obviously. Well, Max was, uh, Max helped me with coaching for sure. Yeah. So, did did, you, did he ever test you and put you through his physiological test and tell you what your training zones were, et cetera? Yeah, all, all the time. Yes. <laughs> I'll tell you a funny story. So, I was trying to recruit Max to come to Boulder to practice here. So, obviously, he ended up going to um, UC Davis instead of Boulder. But we were, so he and I were working. He would come to Boulder for a month. And, and one day a week, he'd test athletes at, at our office. And Oh, I can't remember who it was. One of the on-say riders was actually visiting Steamboat for a self-imposed training camp. So he comes to Boulder, Max is testing him. He does a skin full test for his body fat. And he keeps looking over at me, winking at me. And he would pinch the guy, you know, and and then he's putting him through the test. Oh, man, at the the end of the test, he said, you know, you you really suck today. And and, and here's your numbers. You know, you're, you're, you're fat and you're slow. And the guy's looking at him going... I've been training like crazy. Max, what's the deal? And Max is winking at me the whole time. So Max writes up his report, sends the guy off to go train. The truth of the matter is the guy was quite fit.
0: It's <laughs> so, a strange way of doing it, yeah. okay. So,
3: so uh, you might think back to some of your conversations with, with the coach who's using test results to motivate you to go. So a coach can give you an excuse to take a day off, and a coach can also then use some psychology to press you to, to up your game as well. So Max and I got a, a pretty good
1: laugh out of that. Day. Max, what are you doing? But anyway. <laughs> so wait a minute. I used to come in and get tested by you and Rob Pickles, and you said the same thing to me, except – I don't think that was motivating. I think you actually—it was true. <laughs> that, that was just you true. You are a little
0: chunky today,
1: Trevor. I, 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 I'm going uh, plead the fifth. <laughs> actually, the best thing you ever said to me is you just looked at my my MRI and you went, "You look like you're in your forties, Trevor." <laughs> I
2: remember a story with Max Testa that he he was always positive, always positive, always positive, positive. and he would you know help you uh, with the coaching and the motivation. But mainly, you know, you go see him and when you're injured. And so let's just say I had an injury in in my ankle and it was hurting me. And then, you know, a couple days later I went back and it's like, yeah, my ankle seems all right, but now my calf is hurting me. And he's so he would be like, Oh, that's good. That's good. It's moving towards your heart. The injury's moving away. And And I'm like, okay, okay. Sounds good. And then just keep kind of go out and doing the training. But no matter where the injury was, we have to when you go back and check with him like a couple days later. It was always something was always going better unless it was serious. He knew then. was like look, you can't do this. But if it was like a strain or something, he would just be like, oh yeah, it's moving away. It's moving towards the heart. That means it's getting better.
3: He he did make the laboratory a fun place to work. He's one of my favorite people, by the way. So we we we've had a lot of lot of athletes in common over the years, and we've learned from each other. But I would have to say we've laughed a lot together too. So he's a pretty good guy.
2: Ultimately, I think the most important thing though for riders is and it takes time is you need to learn your body you have to learn what works for you what doesn't work for you you know if intervals are is a good thing or if the endurance rise actually pays off just learning what's an what 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 is fatigue compared to what's an injury and how much fatigue is like leading towards overtraining or not and a lot of it and it takes years to kind of to figure that out of learning about your body and i'll give you an example of one with uh jake keogh who was uh, on our team with five hour energy Fantastic sprinter, super good rider. We got into these races and he would be racing along. And then once he started really going hard near the end, he just he would start slowly getting dropped. He just couldn't go. His face was beat red. He just was you could see he was trying, but he wasn't going well. And I'm like, so I would after the race talk to him, like, Jake, something's up, you know, something's not right. And he wasn't really sure what it was. And so it kind of repeated itself for like three or four days or three or four races to the point where I was like, look, Jake, even if you weren't training. You would be better than what you're doing right now. So this is something else. This has to be something else. And I didn't know what it was. And, I, and so I pulled him off. I was like, look, you can't race anymore until you go and figure out what was going on. And he ended up, what, what ended up happening and figuring out was that when he started going really, really hard, he had the tachycardia in his heart. And so his heart was racing, going up to like 215 beats per minute. And so it wasn't able to like, I don't know, not get the oxygen to his body. His face would turn all red. And then he would just go slower and slower and get dropped. But it wasn't until finally I was like, like, in other words, Jake wasn't listening to his body. He just wasn't riding well. He didn't really know, know the reason was. But I was like, finally, like, you could not train for two weeks and you would be doing better than what you're doing now. So it's something more serious and you got to go figure it out. And, and it ended up being that he had this, uh, the heart palpitations that were throwing him all off and he ended up having to stop.
3: Did he have to retire?
2: Well, he stopped for a while. Uh, he did. He retired for a while. And then he went to get it checked out. I think he went and had a procedure. Started racing again, I think, with Skyline, and then I think he, I, don't, I think he had a reoccurrence, and then had yeah. to stop again. So he had an
3: ablation, yeah. and then uh, it reoccurred, yeah. So that's you know that's that's a podcast we need Leonard Zinn here. actually we have, actually, we've we've done have already we've done. done, it done. We we've pumping. got we've yeah. got half we've got half of the too. Leonard zinn Chris Case
1: yep. combo here. And, uh, so I mean, continuing with that, one of my big mistakes that I see athletes make is not knowing themselves, and. I learned this, I I love this story. I was out for a ride when I was living in Victoria with Melanie McQuaid, who's a multi-time Xterra world champion. And we were doing hill repeats. And after she did a couple, we're sitting there at the bottom of the hill and she just looks at me and goes, Trevor, I effing suck. (laughs) (laughs) And it was, you know, she wasn't trying to say I'm having a bad day. She didn't make any excuses. She was testing herself and just said, I'm not where I need to be. And she went home that day And she redid her race calendar so that her season started a little later. She redesigned her training, got herself back on course, and she won worlds again that year. And I truly believe if she hadn't faced herself that day and tried to convince herself she was on course, she wouldn't have had a successful season. It's really critical that you always, whether you like it or not, you need to face yourself you need to know where you're at and i think that's part of being an uncoachable athlete is when athletes don't want to hear what the coach is saying to you so you always be honest
0: with yourself right coach might
1: be not be telling you what you like but they are telling you what you need to hear and from an educated perspective um,
3: most of the time right most of the time you know
1: and there's a piece of this we haven't talked about yet
3: and that's nutrition and avoiding fad diets and getting too thin and those are all part of being that uncoachable athlete or not knowing yourself right i mean You remember Rudy uh, uh, that only ate carrots? He had orange skin. It was (laughs) was
1: the craziest thing. We went to every restaurant. He would not order anything. And it was because he had this theory that if you can't see the kitchen, Mm. you can't see what they're cooking, so it's not safe food. The only time the entire trip he ordered any food was we were out in the middle of the desert and there was this really sketchy looking burrito truck. (laughs) They all looked at it and went, that's scary. He went over there and ordered three burritos
0: because he could see the
1: kitchen. (laughs) But he did not eat. Yeah. He so, was 98 pounds. Uh, yeah. And, and of course, he failed, right?
3: I mean, yeah. he, he failed big time early in the season and, and never to be seen again. So that,
0: that sounds like it's well beyond uncoachable. That sounds like a mental he, health issue at that point.
3: Actually, I don't want to throw him under the bus. Yeah, I, won't I, mean, mention, that, I won't mention his last name here, but yes, he ended up needing a lot of psychological. Sure. So well, he had a severe concussion, mm. which is a whole nother podcast. Yeah. You could, <laughs> yes, it
2: is. You can also take it to the next level with cyclists that eat uber healthy, which 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 is good. And so what happens is if you're, if you're traveling to events, you have to eat out. And so if you're at home and you're just eating brown rice and oatmeal all the time, and then all of a sudden you have to travel to an event, a three-day event, and you're going to have to eat out. So if you're eating out, you're eating at restaurants, which then has salt, it has grease, it has butter, it has all this kind of stuff. And if you're not used to that, it messes you up completely and so it's a matter of balancing kind of how balancing how you eat at home knowing that you're going to have to travel if you travel all the time for events and races i mean you want to eat healthy but you have to have some oils and and butter and stuff in your meals so that when you do travel it's not going to be a complete shock to your system and then you're going to be you know sitting on the toilet instead of sitting on the bike (laughs) And I've seen this happen and I've seen this happen and I've seen, I've also seen riders, well, they'll take, they'll take the brown, you know, they'll cook a bunch of brown rice and they'll put it in baggies and they'll bring it with them to go to, to go to certain events. But yeah, you have to be careful. And I think when you're younger, uh, a younger cyclist, you know, just eat healthy, eat normal. Don't worry about weight. Let your, let your training and take, you know, if you're going to, if you're going to lose weight, let the training naturally take the weight off. Don't starve yourself to be able to take that weight off later on. Once you get older, you know, we see, you know, the pros, obviously watching their diet and cutting calories in order to be able to become lighter to get over the you know a 25 mile mountain but how many of us have to go over 25 mile
3: mountains yeah. so here's my nutrition story on myself so not everybody knows that that that, that i was a, a fairly successful bike racer as a kid uh two-time world disabled champion blah 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 and and we were in in um, uh, rural france for the worlds one year early in early in the paralympic movement and um we were paying a pretty sketchy bed and breakfast. It was over a bar. And uh, so I went downstairs to tell the kitchen uh, what the team needed for the pre-race meal. You know, a little pasta, a little meat on the side, a little salad, blah, blah, blah. And uh, we get down there and there's this little bitty plate of pasta and this big slab of meat. And I didn't recognize the meat. And he kept telling me it was flesh. It was flesh. Well, the bottom line was it was horse. Mm. Right? Ah, it is the best. It is the best meat for you before you race. It is the best. It is the best. So, of course, the teammates might look around the room and they're all gagging. They wouldn't eat horse if it life depended on it. And I said, Hell, I gotta eat, so i hate the horse. And and of course, went on to win the race. And the guy came back and said, See? It was the horse. <laughs> So, yeah, you, you do need to be flexible in your diet. And, and another one is a, a very popular uh, cycling journalist, uh, Celine Yeager, wrote an article not too long ago about how to eat when you travel. And she, so she was actually listing some things that she discovered that were relatively low in calorie or re- appropriate. So let's call it relatively healthy. Well, one of the things on her list was the Egg McMuffin from McDonald's right? It's 400 calories. It's got meat. It's got a little fat. It's got egg. It's got bread. It's got, you know, all the food groups in one little 400 calorie package. And there's usually a McDonald's everywhere. Okay. It, and it was like this light went off. So when I'm traveling, I I look around <laughs> to find my egg McMuffin for breakfast because it's it's familiar, right? It's warm and gooey and familiar. And I seem to really ride well on egg McMuffins.
0: Well, there you go. Thanks. for Lee. <laughs> endorsement, You and Chris Horner, powered by McDonald's. <laughs> well, it's the only thing I ate at McDonald's. Wait, who's yeah.
1: advertising on this episode? <laughs> yeah. anyway. So you bring up a really good point, though, of another big mistake is eating something completely unfamiliar the day before. The race. I can't tell you how many times I've had this conversation for some people. Where, where somebody tells me, you know, ask me, what, what should my, my day before meal be? What should my breakfast be? And I'll ask them what they do. And, and they describe something very strange. That they got from piecing together a bunch of articles and I go, do you ever eat that? Well, no, but this is race day. <laughs> I go, how often do you go out to the Saturday morning group ride? Well, every week, what do you eat the night before? Well, I eat this. So why don't you eat that the night before the race? But that's just a, a, a you know, a weekly thing. I'm like, how do you do it? The, the, the group ride? Yeah. I do great. then why would you change that formula? Mm -hmm. Go with what you know. Whoop is the performance tool that is changing the way people optimize their training and recovery. Whoop provides a wrist-worn heart rate monitor that features detailed app-based analytics and insights on recovery, strain, and sleep. Whoop tracks sleep quality and heart rate variability 100 times per second, 24 hours per day, to help you know when your body is recovered or when it needs rest. You could also use the strap to track workouts and get strain scores to let you know how strenuous the training was on your body. Whoop helps you optimize your sleep based on how fatiguing your day was and track sleep performance with insights into sleep quality, stages of sleep, and consistency. To make things better, Whoop just released the new WhoopStrap 3.0, which includes a suite of new hardware and app features. The WhoopStrap 3.0 now has 5-day battery life, an improved strap, and live heart rate monitoring. A handful of new in-app features, including the new Strain Coach, improve the way you track and plan your training and recovery. Whoop has provided an offer for Fast Talk listeners to get 15% off their purchase with the code FASTTALK. That's F-A-S-T-T-A-L-K, so two T's, no space. Just go to whoop.com, that's W-H-O-O-P.com, and use the code Talk at checkout to save 15% off and optimize the way you train. But I did have one mistake I wanted to bring up, which is that getting too focused on the details, Mm -hmm. particularly because we get a lot of questions of very, very minute details about training zones or particulars of interval work. And one thing I have noticed talking or interviewing a lot of very successful pros is they don't get caught up in that minutia. As a matter of fact, usually when they talk about their training, they're talking about it in the context of a week. They're talking about in the context of a training block, Mm -hmm. and no particular whether the intervals went great or didn't go very well, they don't get too worked up in that. They get more worked up on, am I going in the right direction? Did the week come together very well? So, I think a big mistake is is getting too focused on the trees and forgetting the forest. What do what do you guys think?
3: I think that's pretty simple. I mean, I think you're right. We have to. It's not a day. It's not a week. It's a whole lot longer program, and you. You've got to see every tree in the forest. Yeah.
2: I mean, I, I I agree. It's that overall it's that overall picture. You know, and the thing is too with a lot of riders, it's like cycling in your training program, it's like it's like building a foundation. You build that base. You know, you do those early season miles and you do some some threshold intervals leading up towards the events. Not every event is gonna go good. You're gonna have off days, you're gonna have off weeks, but you have to rem- what you have to kind of remember is that everything you're doing is building on itself, which is gonna pay off later on. So it's important to not get discouraged because you might have a bad week. We all have, not everybody, but I mean, everybody has a a life going on, a family life, a social life, stress. All of this plays a factor in how you feel and how you kind of uh, adjust leading up to a race. And so sometimes it goes great, sometimes it doesn't. But if you've put in the work and you've put in the training through, you know, the months leading up to that, it might not be paying off right now, but later on it will pay off. And that's something that I try to relay when I was a manager to the riders is that if you put in the work, it's going to pay off a little bit later on. It's sometimes it just takes a little bit longer until your body actually gets to that, you know, that, that perfect peakness of uh fitness.
3: Which brings me to kind of a new fad, right? So when I was young and, and training and, and even training myself and coaching other people, we said that, that you wanted to avoid no man's land, right? No man's land was you weren't going fast enough to get better, and you weren't going slow enough to recover. You wanted to avoid no man's land. Yeah, now all of a sudden, a new name. it's been given a new name called the sweet spot training. And I know local coaches are really, really into sweet spot. I, I don't have an opinion about it. I mean, it's, it's a lovely place to go ride. I've never tried just riding no man's land to make myself faster, but it's pretty popular right now.
0: What we do you have, think? We've done, yeah. I mean, it, it, it is. We've done we've done several episodes addressing. The opposite of that would, which would be the polarized approach. But, um, we've we've talked we've talked quite a bit about sweet spot, what it means, where it's appropriate, where it's not. But it, a, a point for sure that it is popular. It is a comfortable place to be because it's not too hard, it's not too easy. It's that Goldilocks zone, <laughs> if you will. You know, I'd say the one thing you have to be
1: careful. I think it becomes a mistake when you're, you're doing it because of how good it feels. The fact of the matter is sweet spot is hard, It's hard enough that you feel like, man, I got a good workout, but it never really hurts. Right. And mm-hmm. that breeds a certain popularity that you want to go out and just ride at that intensity. Cause you come back every day saying that was fantastic. And if you don't race and you just want to feel good on the bike, I'd say sweet spot every day. Sure. But I think if you are trying to perform at your best, if you're looking at racing, I think there's a place for it, but not every day. Frankie, what was it like for your training? Was this something you avoided or did you do a lot of sweet spot work?
2: No, I wouldn't say I did a lot of sweet spot work, but it, dep- it, it, it depends on the level of rider you are. It depends on the objectives that you have. Like you just said, you know, if you want to do well at races, you're going to have to be a little bit more specific with the, the training, the intensity intervals, where you're going to have to suffer. I mean, Henny Kuiper, who was a director with Motorola, he was multi, you know, two time, I think two time world, a world champion and a fantastic classics rider used to always tell us you need to train harder mm-hmm. than you race so that when you get into the races, the races almost feel easy compared to how your training was. And so I think a little bit depends on uh, your, your objectives, you know, sweet spot training, like you said, you, it feels good. And sometimes, and sometimes there's a place for it just to ride your bike, not have to chase the numbers, just kind of go ride your bike. But at other times, you need to be a little bit more focused on the numbers or a little bit more focused on that intensity if you want to be able to, you know, be, if you want to keep moving up the ladder, let's say.
3: Yeah, I, I was going to leave this till the end, but I, uh, your word objectives really is, is, is right on the money. I think you got to decide why you ride your bike. Yep. You know, I've got a really good friend who's, uh, he won the, uh, the Veterans Tour of France. I can't remember what it was called, the Tour de Var. Uh, back when I think he was 37, or 38 years old, he's now 70, 72. He rides every day. I mean, this guy is like the Energizer bunny. He rides every day, but when the going gets tough on a group ride, he has trouble hanging mm-hmm. and he rides. So he, I said, Mark, why do you ride so much? I love to ride my bike, right? Mm-hmm. So I personally like to go fast on occasion. Yeah. So to go fast on occasion, you, you, gotta, you gotta pin a number on every now and then, right? So I think every individual has to look in the mirror and decide why do I ride my bike? And that, that, that sh- you should be able to pick your
1: training style based on why you ride your bike. And so to flip that around, we got the mistakes that coaches make. This is a mistake I made with an athlete several years ago who hired me as a coach. But he wasn't a racer. He just enjoyed riding mm-hmm. his bike. And I gave him this great training plan to turn him into a fantastic racer. <laughs>
0: <Yeah>. And after <laughs> a few it. months,
1: he gave me a very valid criticism. He's like, Trevor, I mean, yeah, I'm stronger than I, I've been, but I'm not enjoying this. Mm-hmm. And I just ride my bike for enjoyment. You're giving me the wrong plan, and he was—he was dead right. Right. Yep. And that guy's probably going to live longer than all of us
4: because yeah. he's, <laughs> he's, exactly. like, he's, gonna,
3: he's not using up
1: all—he's not using up all those extra heartbeats, right? Yeah. I mean, Jared Berg, the head physiologist at CU Sport, spends a lot of time testing athletes, so he sees the truth about how riders are training and the effects it has on their bodies. He had a lot to say about nutrition and the physiological effects of sweet spot when you're looking at physiological testing when you're looking at using the numbers and, and the various results that you give people are there mistakes that you see everybody including pros make in terms of how they use it how they interpret it
6: we've definitely seen some pros make nutritional mistakes i mean this is a whole different you know this is this is you know stepping into your um, yeah. territory and such but people people come in basically with some complaints and then what we see in the lab through various tools, including physiological testing, is that they are tanked as far as they're not, they don't have the energy stores in order to push a test. They may look amazing like in those baseline sort of sub-threshold endurance zones. But once we ask them to do something that they might actually need in a race, you know, like at the end of a stage or, and such, they have no high end. And that's really just a, an energy availability issue. And what we see is a blunted test we see lower heart rates we see empty glycogen stores through muscle sound analysis
1: and so what's your recommendation to, to fix that
6: it's you know it's it's extensive recovery it's time off it's improving it's improving diet having diet meet their training and racing needs yeah so usually usually ends up you know being like a, a more more carbohydrate situation Any
1: other big mistakes or common mistakes that you see people make
6: uh, this is. It's usually those pros that are in for the short haul. They're trying to get maximum gains too quickly, right? They're not really spent patiently training their physiology, right? They're not doing that that base work, you know, and that foundation to to build them that professional profile, right? And they have a real steep lactate curve because they're always sort of training. In this, you know, gray zone that we all say that we all kind of hear about, it's just a little bit too hard to be to be really enhancing their type one muscle fibers, yet a little maybe too easy to really be building up the capacity of their type two a's, right?
1: What do you see in their uh, lactate profile when they do that?
6: Uh, we'll see when they're when it's real easy, we'll see kind of flat or like lo- low lactate curves when it's really easy. But when it gets to the point where they're still saying it's pretty, it's pretty easy for them we'll see that that's where, they're, um, that's where they're doing most of their training. If we ask them, hey, you know, at, say at you know, maybe it's at 2.5 watts per kilo, they're doing – or maybe 3 watts per kilo, they're doing most of their training there, but they might have lactate levels of 2.2 millimoles. Right? Then we go up to like 3.5 watts per kilo, and lactate doesn't budge sometimes. It stays the same, so they almost have like this false flat. Right. They have a low flat and then it goes up a little bit and then it flattens off again in that lactate profile curve. Right. And so it basically means, that, hey, there's probably spending a lot of time training there, but they're training in a highly stressed at a highly or at a more stressed level. And so they're getting sort of all the fatigue associated with type two A muscle fibers, but trying to give but trying to train at that. But thinking that that's that's their their um, their base sort of endurance training zone.
1: Great answer. I like that.
6: The other one that I also I often see, their um threshold work belts are just too hard. Right? They're trying they're trying to train their ability to have steady state lactates, but they're training where the lactate's not steady. Right. right? And so it'd be like basically training above threshold, but trying to improve their um sort of tempo climbing effort right? That's your base. When you're above threshold, you're trying to choose your your maximum sort of performance capacity, right? And all those sort of enzymes associated with our type 2B muscle fibers, but those type 2A muscle fibers, they sort of take a longer sustaining effort that encourages them to to build up their mitochondria and their lactate clearing capacity. And so that's sort of that sub-threshold. Some people call it sweet spot area. And so some people think they're training at sweet spot, but it's just too high. And that's one of the, one of the key spots is to really understand sweet spots should be where it should be that maximum steady state lactate. And some of us are too far above that.
1: My experience is that when people are actually training at threshold, they think it's too easy. They think it has to hurt a lot more than it does so they avoid it.
6: Yeah, and it's and it's the cool thing about when you're training right at you know at that ideal threshold spot where you're sort of pushing and trying to move that threshold, it's a spot that you should be able to hold for over an hour and it should feel it should feel pretty good. But a lot of us are like really good on those 20, 30 minute FTP test, but we don't have that endurance to support the, that effort for longer than that 20 or 30 minutes.
1: Another common mistake that shows up in physiological testing is too much intensity.
0: One of the things that you said, Frankie, about intensity caught my attention because we talk about that a lot on this podcast. Too much intensity. I I would venture to say that pros don't do too much intensity or aren't prone to that, but amateurs are prone to doing too much intensity. So in terms of a mistake that people make, this is skewed more towards the amateurs and less towards the pros. You know, this is certainly
1: one that we have addressed every time we've talked with Dr. Seiler, we've addressed the polarized model. I actually just sent to Chris um, an article yesterday talking about how the immune system produces the the adaptations in our muscles and our body. And one of the things that was, one of the studies I read for that article was looking at the release of reactive oxygen species, so, so buildup of oxidative damage. And it showed that when you, there's this one study looked at too much high intensity work, having athletes just do tons and tons of interval work. And it showed that they produced an overwhelming amount of ROS that actually shut down the immune system. So mm-hmm. the immune system couldn't do any repair. And they went further to show that in overtrained athletes, you saw very elevated levels of, of reactive oxygen species. So that's the effects of too much high intensity work. You actually shut down the repair process. Your body can't adapt. So you need some. You, you need some ROS to pr- uh, promote adaptations, but too much, you're going to shut down. Sure. Mm-hmm.
2: And and I would say, you know, for the pros, the intensity comes in the races. Uh, maybe early season leading up, you might have some some you know specific interval sessions, but you know, if you're doing the the classics or even, you know, a five-day stage race, every single day is flat out. You So, you know, when I was racing, I didn't have to do interval training because I had all that intensity during the week when I was racing. And then after that, it would matter be like recovery or building or focusing on something else. I mean, if I had a three weeks off, then that's a little bit different situation. And so that's where it comes back with amateurs. Yeah, if you do too much intensity and you do too much red line yeah it'll affect your muscles it'll affect your immune system and you, it just it, it won't be it won't be good for you so there there is a balance and that's where the coach you know that's where we talked about with the coach comes into play of being able to bounce ideas off and being able to kind of get an idea of what works for you and what doesn't work for you and at the same time which we you know I think we're going to go into which you talked about like with the fitting and different stuff like that you know my opinion with a coach making a training schedule getting a fit it's not like locked in, it, you know, it's not, it's not the Bible that you have to be able to stick with. You know, you're allowed to make some adjustments so that it fits for your style, your riding ability. You know, there's, there's always some flexibility in, in trying to adjust things to where it's more comfortable for you or it works for you as an individual.
1: Absolutely. This interview goes back a few years, but it's one of my favorite quotes. We asked Grant Holicky of Forever Endurance
7: what's the biggest mistake athletes make? And here's his response. Uh, So the the big one, the one that jumps out at me always is making the easy too hard and making the hard not hard enough. Um, Training is about working the edges of the system. Um, Base training is is that percentage of wattage or heart rate or however you happen to be describing it uh, or perceived effort. Base training is the foundation of what we're doing as an athlete. Um, you can do that base training harder. And frankly, one of the real interesting points is is, is shown in, many, in, in several studies. Base training, which is a little bit easier, and tempo training, which is that no man's land below threshold, actually are going to give you a similar physiological response. They both have a similar effect on threshold power. They both have a similar effect on VO2 max power, all of those things. Just one of them makes you more tired than the other one makes you. So the more time we spend in tempo, the more time we spend in that no man's land. That's going to sap the legs, that's going to sap the body. Now when we turn around on Wednesday and it's time to really just rail those threshold efforts, or rail those VO2 max efforts, we tend to not have as much left in the legs. So the hard training gets diminished down a little bit, the easy training gets lifted up a little bit, and we live in that world as as uh as Neil my my uh, partner at Apex Coaching describes as we live in moderato, we live in that medium place, and and we're not going to get that return out of that medium place. Make your hard efforts super hard, and make your base training and your easy days at base or super easy. Let's get back to the show and talk about some non-training related mistakes.
0: I think that's a good segue to turn it over to Dr. Pruitt and talk about some of those equipment mistakes, some of those. Position mistakes. Position mistakes. And I know previously on this podcast, you've told the story about Sylvain Chavanel and wanting his bike to look a certain way. I don't know <laughs> if that's a good place to start. Well, that, that's,
3: I mean, in my, in my notes, I said you know, the biggest fit mistake is that even pros, even pros, not just young riders, not just masters, they want their bike to look a certain way. And, and the key is the bike.
0: Slam that stem. <laughs> yeah. Slam the stem all you the way say, down. Frankie?
3: Absolutely. So slam that stem no matter what. It's true. And so they want their bike to look like either their hero's bike or they want it to look a certain way, the way it leans up against the wall at the the coffee shop. (laughs) And the truth of the matter is the bike needs to look like them. Right. So uh, I'll I'll throw my wife under the bus. She uh, (laughs) 20 years ago, she had she had a, a lumbar spine fusion and lost a lot of flexibility and a lot of fitness. So. In those days, you know, I was working with Ben Sarada and his his uh, writing his fit manuals and those kind of things. And so Ben built her a bike that was a 57 centimeter seat tube and a 50 centimeter top tube and about a 20 centimeter head tube extension. So with with little wheels, she had some overlap she had to put on the little wheels. When her bike was leaning up against the wall of the coffee shop, it looked like she'd lost her job at the circus, and they let her <laughs> keep her bike, right? But when she was on it, it was a thing of beauty. And she rode that bike for five years, got really, really fit, and is now, she can ride an off the hook store bought bike. So that, but at that moment, that bike needed to look like her. Sylvain Chabanel that that Chris mentioned, you know, he showed up at a a fall camp in Leuven, Belgium, 10 days after he had uh, a discectomy, a a spine surgery. And so he comes in pretty fit, all excited, and we start, you know, adjusting the bike. The way he presented himself that day, and he's oh this feels this feels pretty good. My back doesn't. Hurt. And he gets off and he looks at his bike and goes, I can't ride that. Yeah, I'm a professional. I can't ride that. And I said, no. Today you're not a professional. Today you're a back patient. Mm. And so gave him his rehab goals. So when you reach this goal, you can take out one head tube spacer. When you reach this goal, you can take out another one. And make a long story short, 90 days later, he won the three days of Depon. In the, in the penultimate time trial, in his full-blown time trial position. So the bike bike fit is, like like Frank said, it's, it's a mobile thing. It's ever-moving target. A bike fit is, is something – it's one picture. It's like an x-ray. It's a picture of you that day, the way you presented to that bike fitter and the way he examined you that day. And it it does need to move. It does need to, to change a little bit. I, I had back pain recently, and I'm looking around going, who's going to help me? And, and I lowered my saddle five millimeters and voila, my back pain went away. So, yeah, bike, bike fit, even for everybody, is a moving target. It needs to look like you. And it is something that should be done on a relatively regular basis. We go, yep. we go back to, so I'm responsible for, for uh, Quick Step and Bora, Bowles Dolman, uh, Wildlife Generation, uh, blah, blah, blah. We go every year. And we also train some of the guys on their staffs to be able to recognize some basic bike fit issues so that positions can be tweaked even during the season. So, yeah, bike fit is a, is a crucial piece. It shouldn't
1: be a, um, a trophy to, to someone else's position. It should be your position. Yes, something like I tell any athlete when they get too obsessed about appearance is
0: everything looks good on the podium. Nothing looks good off. yes this is about performance yeah and i bet we could talk endlessly about some of the old school mentality things that lead to a lot of these fit issues and frankie i don't know if there are any stories you could share about your time in the peloton with people doing weird things with not just position but stuff with their saddles or things with their bars or, or or things like that that were just total mistakes
2: well, I mean, long stem, they'd slam the saddle all the way back. You know, that was kind of like the, the thing that a lot of riders used to do. I and mean, just the same thing with the cleats, just pushing them like all the way, you know, back. So yeah, fitting is it's it's critical. You know, it, it makes such a huge, huge difference for anybody that's uh, that's riding. It's just that once the fitting is done, it's not completely locked in because when you're riding on a turbo trainer, you know, it feels one way, but then when you get out on the road and you start going hard you start creeping up on the saddle, things change, or, you know, it feels comfortable but when you start climbing. It's not the same. And these are all things that I've experienced, you know, I'll start climbing and it's like, I'm not, I don't really have the power. I need to, you know, raise my saddle a little bit, or I need to move my saddle a little bit forward. And so you just have to change, be aware of changing things. And it also, like my position when I was 25 compared to my position now on the bike has changed. I have the head stack, uh, you know, coming up. I have to sit a little bit. I need a shorter stem. I need to sit up a little bit more. I can't have it, you know, have that, that flat back like uh like i used to and still feel good on the bike with a lot of power but it's not it's not the same position that i had when i was 25
3: one of the funniest stories um back in the greg lamond days greg had, had won the worlds uh, won the tour and the year before and they'd all gone to europe for training camps and ron people runs into runs into um greg and says "Wow, oh, you had such a great year you know i really struggled at the end of the last season and greg said well let me look at your bike position, right? So, Greg, of course, had femurs, you know, so long. His knees are right above his ankles. I mean, the guy was made to be a bike racer. And he tells uh, Rhonda, you just need to slam your seat all the way back, and you're going to love it. <laughs> it'll, it'll, take, it'll take a while for you to get used to it but um, so anyway so he slams his seat all the way back he trains first race of the year he, you know both hamstrings rip and he spends the next six weeks you know living basically in my office back in America rehabilitating his hamstring injuries
0: does, does Ron have the shortest femur of his <laughs> anti cyclist? Uh, I don't
3: know about the shortest but they were not they weren't great so they, they weren't LeMond yes. so um, taking it you got to be careful where you get your advice right I mean so when I was a young racer young caregiver to uh, the stars that visited boulder yet there was there weren't many experts out there on fit right mm-hmm. And now wow there, there's so many people out there I, I caution listeners to be careful from whom you get your coaching advice and from whom you get your fit advice there are a lot of garage fitters out there right now who who want to be good and they just don't have the experience to do it so just be careful
2: i had an experience with I don't know if he was a garage fitter, but it was when I was on Co-fid- East in 1997 and it was Cyril Guimard. And Cyril Guimard had, he he fit me on the bike. And it was like, I felt like I was pedaling on my tiptoes and I was like way back. And so he's same thing. He's like, just stick with it, you know, just stick with it. You'll get used to it. And so, you know, a couple days days uh, trying to ride like that, but I, I couldn't do it. I had to, I had to, again, I just had to throw out what he had uh, proposed and just kind of, go back to what I was comfortable with and so you know you, you have you ha- you're gonna have different experiences with different uh, different people but the thing is too from back then the technology now really changes the way the bike fit is done
3: you bet you bet so three- dimension motion capture you know I was the first guy to experiment with and refine its use back in 1985 remember 96 the 96 Olympics uh, Frankie we we used you guys as a lot of beta testing I did 3d motion capture on all you guys as we were leading up to the the Olympics. And now, you know, if you're not using 3D motion capture or some other type of technology, you're, you're off the bike. Uh, or, or, excuse me, off the back uh, as a bike fitter. But my caution is this. So, take a young doctor uh, who has no wealth of clinical experience. A knee pain patient comes in and he's a little unsure. He says, well, let's get an MRI. And so, you get the MRI. Well, MRIs, they're going to see everything, even things that aren't pathologic. So, suddenly, you got medial knee pain as a cyclist, and the MRI says you got a torn medial meniscus, you're going to have a surgery that you don't need, right? So you got to be careful with technology over-interpreting what you see. So I think that you need not only technology, but you also need that well-trained, well-experienced fitter who uses the technology to augment that, that customer experience, not relying on the technology to provide the customer experience.
1: Also, to flip this all around, unless there's something absolutely horrible with your position, nobody can ride alongside you, look at you riding the bike, and tell you what's wrong with your position. And, and be a little untrusting if somebody tries to do that. Certainly don't ask anybody to do that. Every now and then, though, Trevor, I'm out on the road.
3: No, I'll you this, can, I'll, so I'll, you I'll see
0: right. the things that are wrong, I bet. Uh,
3: oh, my God. I, I'll ride up I'll tap on the shoulder and say, excuse me. You don't, you don't know me, but.
0: <laughs> but I can help you <laughs> if you want. Yeah,
3: you need to explore this opportunity. Anyway, so.
2: Like you said, with the bike fitting and the technology, you know, I mean, sometimes some people, you know, I have a buddy that I ride with. He has like a kind of a natural kind of twitch in his knee, you know, it, like it, top of the stroke, it comes out and it comes back in. And with other people, there's other different kind of scenarios where they, they just have a certain riding style where you have to be careful, like you know, you're not necessarily, you're trying to you're trying to fit them to make them more comfortable and make it a good position, but you're not necessarily going to fix, you know, that little twitch of the knee is going to happen no matter what. It's like, you're not going to be able to correct it just because you see it. And so that's where the knowledgeable fitter really comes in. Someone that's experienced with cycling to be able to realize that, see that adjust to things, to be able to, to make it work. And I'll have to say that I'm guilty sometimes when I go out on a ride, on a group ride, if I see somebody with a, like their saddle too low and they're just like pedaling, you know, little, little teeny circles, I was like, Hey, you should think about raising your saddle up a teeny bit. And that's about all the advice I get. I usually don't get much more into the fitting part, but if the saddle's too low or too high, or they're like pedaling on their tiptoes, it's like, you should think about lowering that saddle a little bit. Because then the main thing is I just, you know, you just want people to be comfortable on the bike. So they enjoy the bike. So they continue to ride.
3: All pain cannot be resolved with bike fitting. There are pathologies, right? So you, the, the the athlete doesn't want to go to the doctor. So this must be, the bike's fault, right? So two good examples. One was Floyd Landis was having, you know, he broke his hip, returned to racing, blah, blah, blah. Things were going pretty well. And then things began to go south and he began to have a lot of groin pain. So he came to see me for a bike fit and we x-rayed his hip. And that's when we discovered that his hip had become necrotic or, you know, the head of his old fractured hip had died. And that, That scenario is very, very public at this point in time. So I'm not breaking any medical confidences, but I, you know, I remember he brought his manager with him and I said, okay, this, this is not a bike that, here's what I can do, right? Here's what we're going to do to get you through the season. But this is not, this is not a fit issue. This is a pathologic issue. So not all things can be fixed with a, with a five millimeter key. Uh, I, I had a recent client that called me from New York, he said severe back pain at about one hour into a climb or one hour into a triathlon uh, bike leg. And he'd had fits all over the East Coast and it hadn't been resolved. And I said, well, have you been to the doctor? No. I said, so if you're going to come to Colorado to see me, here's what you need to bring with you. You need to go get X, Y, and Z x-rays and and bring those with you. And I'm that's just the piece you haven't had yet, right? Well, his x-rays led us to see why he was unable to choose a saddle. It showed us you know, and his lifting routine, along with his x-ray, really indicted why he was having back pain. So, the bike fit included off-bike exercises, change, change in his lifting program, and and a saddle choice that allowed his spine to be to, to be more neutral. So, you got to have the right expectations from a bike fitter, and you have to give them all the information. So sometimes that does require some technologies other than what can be found at a bike shop.
1: I've had several listeners of the show who have contacted me with pain issues that they were having and said, "What should I do with my bike fit?" And I have actually my answer has always been, "You need a medical fit. You need a doctor mm-hmm. to properly evaluate you because this, as you said, this might be a little more than just raising or lowering your saddle. Right. There might be other things going on."
3: Right. Right, so there are performance fits, there are comfort fits, and there are medical fits, and you need to choose from the menu appropriately.
1: I spoke with Husheng Mary, a past Canadian national team and Olympic coach, about mistakes he's seen top athletes make. He had a lot of good points, but they all come down to one thing: being prepared on race day.
5: Really, for me, top of the list is uh, having a uh, setting it. The- uh, having a proper mindset right is uh, usually you see athletes they started training start started a uh, race with completely off mindsets and and sometimes i look at them and they think you never worked on this you never thought how you're going to start your rights and uh, or how you're going to start your race and and because of that no matter what is on training strategy or training or race strategy, they won't be able to follow. And they become more uh, react than more than uh, be effective or doing what they're supposed to do. Um, you know, generally speaking, probably, is being positive, right? Is be able to keep their mindset within positive parameter to start a race or training. And to do that, they have to train for it. They have to plan it all the time, and they have to work off the bike on it. And and uh if we we go for group rides, and I ask simple question: How was the day? How was your ride here? How was the breakfast? Not many positive coming out of it. Hmm. Oh, you know, ah, not bad. You know, you see only one or two say perfect, everything done accordingly on the plan and ready for it. Uh, so it's basically positive state mindset is very really important.
1: So what else do you have on your list?
5: Next is um, many athletes, they follow really their, what they're good at it. They forgot about their weaknesses and, and that's a human nature. We don't want to talk about the weaknesses. We're just going to go after our uh, strength and, uh, cycling is a sport no matter who they are they are good climbers they're good time trialists. they have you a good flat road cyclists, good descender all of those has to be trained i you know every cyclist for example you can end up in one point to sprint even if they're not sprinter, they're maybe only climber time tries but they're going to end up in one point sprint and I don't see any of them. They're doing any sprinting, any training for sprinting. Oh, we, we are not a sprinter, but you may climb with someone and you're going to beat him on the finish line if you don't know how to do it. And, and then we, uh, we go training the descending. How many of, how many cyclists really pay attention? What's the proper descending or less train on descending? Environment helps i mean if they are in area that there is no uh, significant descent they won't learn it but so it really here is they're not training all the uh, all the skills required skills for cycling and there's a big list of it as i said from climbing descending sprinting time trialing and everyone has to know at least the basics of it how to do it that makes sense
7: absolutely these are all very good
5: and and the other things when it comes to benchmarking also understanding understanding um, the race demand what it takes to be able to finish top 10 on first stage of the that's example of uh of uh what are the requirements right what are the where are the clients basically ability to to uh, to put a list of the demand of the race that can be individual demands okay like what type wh- how much what is my what procurement for this uh what type of tire are going to use for this race and then from there who's racing what i'm racing what are my strengths what are my weaknesses and, and basically it, uh, creating figuring out their race demand to be able to that's example to finish top 10 or be able to finish on the podium right who who's who are embracing those are very important and at least they do that on that level just because of experience they're involved they know everyone but not systematically not many of them systematically to put it down you know the other things I gonna need and especially ahead of time. Okay, if you somebody wanna pull you with the nationals, you know, you better figure out six months at least ahead of time what type of races, what type what are you gonna need for that race. Um I remember a few years ago I was at the world championship in uh, in Madrid and race it was ten kilometer loop and uh, Aaron Erin Erin Wallach made a selection with the group I think they were about the 11 or 12 of them because it has a climb in the park after that it was five five six kilometer uh, descent little descent and then mostly flat. and she got dropped on, on the flat from the group she just could not hold the pace right and at, from that point for a year we work on his her strength and she creates little bit more muscle mass and uh the following year she had I have no problem to hold fifty kilometre on their tail anyway. But again, it's just knowing what's the demand of the race is very important and not many people really thinking about it. In my own experience my always I thought I'm a being pursued a time trialist always I thought uh I am I'm a good flat road cyclist when I was training and my very first race in Europe i was just looking for a climb because i find myself riding riding with climbers and i'm very comfortable and i had such a hard time in the flat because my flat was going about 40 42k their flat was going over 50 kilometers per hour and that's a huge difference how you ride the flats i never and took me about a year to really figure out what I need to do to be able to just hold the wheel on the flats, and uh, not many races in Europe are going to end on the climb. Everyone thinking about the climb, but usually best climbers get popped on the flat. They've never reached the climb, but I'm good for the jump. So again, this comes back to be able to train all the aspects of cycling, not just focusing on one thing. Um, the last things I have on my list is a new experiment on race day. I've seen it over over and over. At least they come to the race and somebody tells them something and they try it right on the day. Never they tried it before. Oh, I have this. If you do this, you're going to do that. So maybe subscribe. That's not the point. But no matter what you want to do, you have to try it before. Beforehand, yes. Nothing new. Nothing new on race day. No matter who tells that, right? Ch- chances are it's not going to work.
1: Let's get back to the show and see what Dr. Pruitt and Frankie have to say about mistakes they see in racing. So, other racing mistakes. What do you guys see? I, I'll get one for
2: riders that are racing in a criterium as they wait for the last lap to try to move up when it's already going. When it's already going ballistic fast. And so uh, my advice, three laps, I mean, it depends on how long the circuit is, but give or take three laps to go, four laps to go. You should already be in position. You should already have moved up, should be in that top 10. And then, you know, two laps to go as the speed starts to go higher. You're already there. If somebody comes by you, you move out, you get on the wheel, you stay up there, but you're there. So you're not with two laps to go using up your sprint to be able to move into position and then when it's time to sprint, you don't have anything left. It's just a matter of being in position uh, earlier, not waiting to hear the bell to think, "Oh God, I got to move up
3: now." Uh, uh, yeah, that's, that's that's crucial. I think the master's mistake is riding defensively, riding not to lose instead of riding to win. Right? No balls, no blue chips. So take, take some chances if you want to. You want some results, you got to go for it. Right? If you if you're gonna hang out and sit in and you know race for tenth place. Uh, maybe that's good, but I don't know I was always throwing out there and beat soundly then than not take a chance but that's just my personality.
1: I always tell my athletes here's all the smart things to do in racing, and the fact of the matter is if you always do the smart thing, you'll never win a race hmm. that at some points you have to take risks you have to take moves that aren't necessarily the the smartest move, but
2: sometimes you have to risk losing to be able to win I mean you definitely have to you you definitely have to do that, and that's not not at every race but You have. I agree with you. You know, you have to risk losing in order to win because if you just sit in, there's always going to be somebody faster than you. The gap's going to get closed off. You're not going to get around the turn right, you know. So might be taking a flyer, might be getting into a break, might, you know, whatever it might be. But sometimes um, you got to think about that scenario and act on it.
1: Even a sprinter who just sits in, they might wait till the end, but that last thousand meters – they are making a whole bunch of risky choices to make sure they're in that position, like you said, for the sprint.
2: Especially, especially as you go through those higher category
3: numbers. (laughs) Right. Yep. Right. You can't make the mistake if you don't enter the race. Right. I mean, I think that's, I think a lot of people, there's a lot of really high quality guys sitting on the couch that, that could really have some success. Now that goes back to why you ride. Right. So I don't know. I, I think, it's my personality, but I, I think you pin on a number every now and then to to remind yourself why you're still alive. And you, if you if you don't pin on the number, you don't get to make that racing mistake. So your first mistake is not not joining the party.
2: And I also say weighing sorry weighing that risk versus reward. You know, in a criterium or a road race packs flying along it's like do i want to go up the, you know do i want to go up the gutter right <laughs> here to try to get around this guy it's like is this worth it because you know we still have 30 miles to go it's like all right you can wait you need to you need to think about these things about you know how far there is to go how dangerous this is how around you know around a, a tight turn do i want to fly around the outside so there, there's a lot to think about when you're in a race and like you know do i want to shoot this gap or not depending on how much you're going to kind of gain for it but then also like, you know, if things go sideways, how much risk there is in like crashing. And so, you know, that risk versus reward is something that I think you need to kind of, that riders need to, to think about during the race. You know, you not, you, you can't just ride around and just kind of move up whenever you want. There's a lot to think about. Tactics, strategy, risk versus reward. There's a lot going on in races.
0: Comes back to one of the things that I often make a mistake at, which is not having enough patience, honestly. I uh, Primarily I race cyclocross, but road racing to me becomes boring if I'm just sitting in. So I make the mistake of not being patient enough and going in and being overly aggressive. Those two things, I think go, sometimes go hand in hand. You can get a lot more, uh, six, you can have a lot more success if you have 5% more patience sometimes. Uh, so I think going hand in hand in that with that is what I call the big dumb horse mistake,
1: <laughs> which is you don't want to sit in the field and do nothing. So I, I constantly see riders that will just get on the front of the field and drive the field for an hour Mm -hmm. just to feel like they did something. And and you're just being the big, dumb horse taking everybody else to the finish line. Sure.
3: But depending on the situation, that may be their job.
1: Yeah. I mean, if you're domestique and you're, that's your job. Yeah. Yeah.
3: And there's guys that are really good at it.
2: (laughs) I would also, and and also it depends on your objectives for a race. I think if you pin or if, you know, if you're racing a good amount, I don't think it's healthy to put the pressure on yourself to try to think about how to win every single race you go to. I think you should take some races and use them kind of as an experience or as a training. In other words, like if a break goes up the road, you're going to try to bridge across a gap to see how how big of a gap you can get across. Or you're going to attack and try to get away to try to get into the breakaway. Or in the beginning of the race, you're going to try to go with each of the moves to get into a break. Because as you had just mentioned, you know, that patience game of just sitting in and waiting to try to do something just at the end, can get a little bit boring. And so a way to be able to mix it up and also take some pressure off yourself so that you don't have that kind of paralyzing kind of, I have to try to, I have to win today. I have to win today. It's like, pick your goals, pick your races that you want to win and, you know, sit, ride smart for those. But in other races, just go have fun. Just go race your bike, go and tear it up. Like just, you know, even if you're racing just to make some other guy lose, by all means, go and have fun with it, and go at it, and attack, and bridge gaps, and do with do you know do whatever you want to do. But mix it up, you know. Don't take every race like it's the world championships, and you you know you're sitting in trying to be patient because you're not gonna you know you're not gonna improve. And a good way to improve is to kind of mix it up in races.
1: I had a race. I just wanted to get a workout, so I, I went to this kid who I've been helping out a little bit and said. I'm riding for you today, and I spent two hours on the front of the field killing myself for him to get my work out. I didn't care if I, I got a result or not. We got to the, close to the final lap. He had his mom in the feed zone. She handed him a Safeway bag with four full water bottles in it, <laughs> which he grabbed with his arm all the way out, and he literally just fell over to the side as soon as he was holding that back. <laughs> was out, So, so much for all the work I did for him. But So let me let me rephrase what I was saying about the big dumb horse. I helped out a, a team. I, I was their coach in Toronto. And I would see the guys get on the front and blow themselves up. And I would ask them later, why did you do that? And they just kind of go, I just couldn't think of anything else to do. So what I always told them is, it's fine to be on the front. But when you're on the front, first thing you do is ask yourself, why am I here? Mm-hmm. And if you can't come up with a good reason, get off the front. Masters
3: racing be pretty defensive so everybody's always waiting for somebody else to go to the front Mm -hmm. so you know there's usually the similar candidates going to find himself on the front week after week Mm -hmm. so patience there pays off because actually it's not a mistake it's something i would suggest people do and that's travel to race go race against other people Mm. right that Mm was in my amateur and master's career man that was big deal i think once a month you had to go outside of your region you know, whether it's a national race, go race someplace else so that you weren't racing against the same characters. Uh, and our results are always good when we went someplace else because nobody knew us. So they were right. unsure about us. And yeah.
0: No, that's great. a great
3: tip. So I see it with injured athletes whose, in, whose careers may be coming to an end. I see it with aging athletes. And it's the inability or failure to mourn who we used to be. And it's... I. I see them becoming sometimes anorexic. I see them becoming even suicidal. I see them floundering in, in a way to make a living. It's, it's, it's huge. And there are a couple of sports psychologists now who really focus on helping people transition. And I'll never forget. So my, my race career and my professional career always were parallel to each other. So when I raced the Paralympics in 1988 and decided I was basically done, I had a career, right? I had a a booming career to go back to, but I still suffered deeply because I lost my identity as a bike racer. I'll never forget Davis Finney and I sitting having a a beer after he had just retired. and, And we were bemoaning the fact that our Olympic uh, how different our lives would have been, how it, our Olympics experience has been different, right? He, and, and he was having a lot of trouble letting go uh, of who he was. And so, I mean, if it happens at that level, I'd, I'd really be interested in hearing Frankie's Frankie's. Uh, Frankie's obviously moved on, stayed in the industry. I really encourage people that are struggling with mourning who they were to get help.
2: Yeah, I, I would agree. It's important to be able to talk with somebody who can help you figure things out or get the resources. I was lucky that I raced, you know, for a long time, did all the biggest races in the world. And so when I, when I was going to stop or when I when I was going to retire, there was nothing that I don't mean this in, in a, in a, in a condescending way, but I, there was nothing that I hadn't accomplished. In other words, I had, I had done almost all the races I had. I was, I was fulfilled. And so I could retire knowing that I had, I had pretty much accomplished what I wanted to. Where there's other writers that maybe didn't reach that level and they're still thinking they have a chance or they have the, the what if I do this, what if I do that. That's much more, more difficult to be able to stop maybe be on an injury before you wanted to stop uh, or before you've accomplished what you wanted to accomplish. That, that's a whole other ballgame. And it also was easier for me to retire by being able to stay in the industry, um, being a director, working in the media, doing the, the announcing Sometimes I've had conversations with some of the riders that I directed and they're getting, you know, up there in years and they're thinking about what to do. And, you know, it's, I have to have a conversation with them. It's pretty much just telling them, you can still race. You just have to switch that mentality of being a pro and just race for fun. You know, start doing something else, start looking for, you know, a, a job or whatever your, your hobby or your interest is or, and spending a little bit more time doing that. But you can continue to ride. It's just a matter of switching off the that pro mentality of just ride your bike for fun when you get into a race, race for fun, and of course they can't immediately do that. They get into the race, and they still have that very competitive nature and that's the thing that you talk about with Davis Finney. certain riders have that competitive nature and they're not able to turn it off no matter what and so it becomes it becomes very individual on on each case you know there's there's not one kind of blanket strategy that can work for everybody
0: what I would add to that is this kind of goes back to knowing yourself and knowing your your reasons and intentions for racing if you're And I'm not talking about whether you're pro or whether you're amateur. I'm talking about whether you're doing it for positive reasons or negative reasons. There are motivators that are healthy and there are motivators that aren't so healthy. If you're doing it for fun, that's great. If you're doing it for your health, that's great. If you're doing it because you're, you know, experimenting with your limits as an athlete, that's a good reason for doing it. If you're doing it because you only generate value as a human being or feel some Mm self-worth because you did good at did well at a bike race, then I think you're doing it for the wrong reason because that's not going to ever sustain a healthy healthy lifestyle. And someday those wins are going to stop coming and you're not going to have a way to generate that self-worth. So maybe I'm getting it a little off track or making it more complicated than it needs to be, but I think that that plays a, a role in a lot of people's transition from one stage of life to the next, whether it's pro to retirement or whether it's 30 year old cat one racer to, okay, now you're 40 year old and man, it's really hard to race as a cat one still, but I really want to do that. And I don't want to say I'm a master's racer, (laughs) you know, like you just have to really be honest with yourself and assess those reasons, assess your why.
3: Yep. So that goes back to You know, we're going to kind of tie this up with the one mistake you can fix, and and that's decide why you ride. Is it for fun? Is it for fitness? Mm -hmm. Is it to win? Why you ride? I think that is that that's really the key. Mm -hmm. And I think all three of us, all four of us, have a would have a slightly different
0: why. Sure. But you need to have a why. You need need to have a have a why. If you could fix. One mistake that you made in your career, what would it be?
2: I'd go back to taking those those rest days before events, not knowing how I would feel, thinking that I needed to kind of take a full day off the bike and then go do a race and then not feeling good and not figuring it out sooner than later. Because it took a while until I figured out like, hey, this is why I'm not feeling good. <laughs> and so, yeah,
1: that, that that's one of the biggest mistakes. I'm gonna go back to the don't get too deep into the weeds. Don't mm-hmm. get so caught up in the numbers and the particulars that you don't see the big picture. I'm very big on purposeful training. Every workout fits within the context of a bigger hole and you always need to see that hole. And if you have forgotten that um, and are obsessing whatever five minute wattage you put out and whatever interval workout, you don't know if you're on track or not, even if it was good numbers.
0: Mm-hmm. Chris, what's yours? I think it it sort of echoes what Dr. Pruitt said and knowing your why, I feel like it's a stereotype I'm sure about the Boulder community, but it's a very intense racing community. Um, You can take things very seriously. You can live a pro life, even if you're an amateur. And I think you can get carried away with that. And I would say that we all have probably made that mistake at one time or another. So really being honest with yourself, taking a step back now and again saying, what am I doing here? Why am I doing this? I do have a child, I do have a job, I do have a life outside of this sport. I don't need to be taking these risks or I don't need to be training this much or I don't need to be counting these calories or whatever the case may be and really trying to make it that pure joy, bringing it back to the pure joy of riding a bike.
3: I
1: love to ride my bike.
0: I do too. <laughs> okay.
1: And so I'm, we forgot one mistake that I just have to quickly mention because Dr. Pru will fold me, back me on this one. And it is my biggest pet peeve. Don't underdress.
0: Don't underdress, people. Actually, pros do a better job of that than a lot of amateurs. Well, actually. I didn't think of it because most pros are pretty good at this. Yeah. 100%. They bundle up. They wear those leg warmers.
2: I have a friend that used to always tell me, "Any fool can be cold."
3: Yeah. Have you ever gone home from a ride because you had too many clothes? I haven't. No.
0: I I wear five jackets pretty much all year round. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> I'm, I'm I'm a classic. Yeah. Warm guy, overdresser. Call me an overdresser if you want, but I like it.
3: Uh, in in my book, I. I tell people to cover their knees until it's 65 degrees
1: mm-hmm. yep. and people their jaws drop whenever I tell them
3: yeah it, it's not because it's gonna be 65 that day sometime no cover your knees if it's not 65 when you're riding mm-hmm. and and that, that that that's that tissue is is totally unprotected to the cold wind and, and you want to get springy you want to get tetoninitis you yep. know why why do you want to work on your tan in February
1: <laughs> yes don't understand it and along those lines, if it's cool enough for you to wear arm warmers, wear knee warmers. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Those are the muscles you're trying to protect. Yeah.
0: Very good. That was another episode of Fast Talk. As always, we love your feedback. Email us at fasttalk at Subscribe to Fast Talk on iTunes, Stitcher, Spotify, SoundCloud, and Google Play. Be sure to leave us a rating and a comment. Become a fan of Fast Talk on Facebook at facebook.com slash velonews and on Twitter at twitter.com slash News. Fast Talk is a joint production between News and Connor Coaching the thoughts and opinions expressed on Fast Talk are those of the individual for Trevor Connor Dr. Andrew Pruitt Frankie Andreo Joe Friel Jerry Berg Grant Holicky and Hushang Amiri I'm Chris Case thanks for listening